Hi everyone, welcome to episode 6 of series 2 of the Nutrition Farming Podcast. Now in this episode, I'm going to be sharing a personal passion. And I'm hoping that this next 60 minutes might inspire some of you to experiment with some of these principles and perhaps embrace a major new regenerative strategy. Well, maybe new to you. I'm talking here about composting. And I'll be sharing a whole host of tips and techniques to create this life-enhancing, carbon-building, stress-reducing input on your farm. So I've called this session A Composting Passion, Enhancing Your Purpose, Profit and Planet. I think probably that this slightly grandiose title is probably worthy of a little dissection. So let's look at that. The passion kicks in the moment you've created your first successful compost and applied it to your soils. I absolutely defy anyone not to get passionate about the positive changes that you can see. In fact, sometimes it tends to kind of sponsor an unlikely positivity. I always think about a farmer friend in central Queensland who I called on the phone at one point to commiserate with him over his third cyclone hit within a short five-year period. Now, he'd recently completed my course and he'd actually made and applied his first large-scale compost. But his memorable words when I called him were, yeah, she's a mess, all right, mate, but you ought to see the stuff lying around that I can compost now. (laughs) You tend to see the glass half full when you get into composting. So what does purpose have to do with composting? Your sense of purpose in your chosen profession is basically about why you do what you do. Now, some of us might farm because perhaps we prefer the outdoor life or playing with machinery, or we might like the challenge, diversity and excitement of trying to extract a living from something so unpredictable. In many cases, actually, the gambling instinct is involved here because every season is a huge investment and it's often a huge gamble. In my own case, I invested almost a million dollars on my apple crop this season uh, at one of the farms and it was pretty hard to watch clouds of unmanageable parrots stripping more fruit than a team of pickers at times. And I now realise that, you know, I've got to invest in exclusion netting for the 10,000 trees that are already half netted. But, you know, while I'm here, I'd really appreciate any ideas that anyone could share about how we can better counter these feathered fiends for the season coming up. So any ideas, please share them. So actually, farmers make casino addicts look like kindergarten kids in many cases. It's not just cash that we're gambling here. It's the blood, the sweat and the tears that we pour into that effort. And that can be so easily destroyed in a five-minute hailstorm or when the sky blackens out with swarming bats as we see in Queensland here. However, our lives are short and many of us are seeking something more meaningful on that short journey. The sense of perhaps being involved in something meaningful and purposeful on the farm is often shaken when we come to understand that the chemical extractive model that we're often involved in has effectively depreciated our main asset. It's just a simple fact. Our soils are not what they used to be. And consequently, the cost of production rises ceaselessly. It's not a sustainable model, and Blind Freddy could see that, but the companies profiting from that approach are pushing frenetically to convince us that there's simply no viable alternative. The regenerative revolution that's happening across the planet as I speak involves a recognition of a viable alternative. We've come to realise in many instances that 
our purpose should perhaps involve a sense of stewardship of the land that we're lucky enough to be able to nurture. We then strive to leave that land a better condition than what we inherited. And the great thing here when you understand the science of this model is that there need be no sacrifice in doing things better. When that recognition actually extends to a realisation that as food producers, we're directly responsible for the health and well-being of our community, we begin to sort of ratchet up that sense of purpose. And when we understand that we're also the main players in countering global warming and the chaos of climate change, that sense of purpose becomes an abiding passion. In fact, there's no profession more important. And when people begin this biological journey, the fun's back in farming. And you see, I hear farmers on a on a monthly basis, older farmers saying, who had the farm on the market in a couple of instances, who were saying, uh, you know, why would I sell? I've never had this much fun. It is so much more satisfying, so much more rewarding to be working with the natural system rather than against it and to watch the changes as your farm improves. Okay, I hear you say, enough of that preaching. What about the profit? We've all got to serve as debt. We've all got to fund our families. What's compost got to do with profit? Well, it's simple. There are two key players linked to our enhanced profitability. Those players are carbon and biodiversity. Now, there are several studies that have confirmed that organic carbon or humus is the principal determinant of profitability. I often mention the National Bank study. We see that whole phenomenon throughout the 57 countries in which we work. The higher your humus level, the better you'll do. Now, the concept of biodiversity is simply it's the core principle in nature. It's always the more, the merrier in natural systems. There's kind of a synergy at work here where the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. The move towards functional diversity and stacked enterprises on the farm and the success of that approach is basically a recognition that monoculture is a model that contradicts the central operating principle of biodiversity. That's the above ground story, but it's even more important when we look below ground because we've lost a great deal of our microbial diversity. And compost represents the single most effective strategy to correct that soil life decimation. A tablespoon of good compost can have more organisms than all of the humans on the planet. And there can be thousands of different species in that tablespoon. Finally, in our breakdown of the title, bit of a lengthy intro, we can look at the potential impact in terms of planetary health. There's now a growing recognition that farmers can literally save the planet. Carbon sequestration through the building of humus holds more promise than any other escape path that we're looking at. It's the solution. And regenerative farmers are the essence of that solution. It doesn't really get more purposeful than that. So, okay, let's get down to business. What exactly is composting? Decomposition is a microbial process absolutely critical to life on the planet. Minerals are recycled, carbon is sequestered into the soil as humus, and soils are constantly regenerated in this cyclical process. Now, composting involves the same process as found in natural decomposition, but with human intervention. We step in and we fast-track the process with things like inoculums and additives and things like controlled oxidation. That's just a fancy term for introducing oxygen into the pile through turning or through specific pile design. Now, if we look at compost and water management, water is rapidly becoming our most precious resource. Countries are waging war 
to secure supply of what's often called the new gold. The use of compost is a premium water-saving strategy. It contains about 25% humus, but more importantly, it stimulates the humus-building organisms in the soil, many of them who are really desperately in need of help. In this context, I often cite a US study where one tonne per acre of compost was applied over three years to multiple sites across two states. The carbon applied in the compost, if we do the analysis, should have raised organic matter on soil tests by 0.15% over the three years. The actual average increase across multiple blocks was 1.35%, nine times more than what you put on. That was the introduced biodiversity that effectively helped reclaim those soils' capacity to build humus. That's the real value of compost. So just continuing the water story, humus holds its own weight in water and the building of humus on your farm, or even in your garden for that matter, can make a huge difference to your soil's utilisation of irrigation water or through infiltration during a rainfall event. In fact, the difference is staggering. If you can build your soil humus levels by just 1%, then that soil can store 170,000 litres per hectare that it couldn't previously store. Now that's 17 litres per square metre. That's a couple of big buckets per square metre that now can be stored in a great storage sponge called humus. Remember that this water, the plant can access as it wants it. There's no energy to deliver that water as there is when you use centre pivots or you pump from a dam 200 kilometres to a farm. There's no evaporation like the massive evaporation we see in dam storage. It really is the ultimate in water storage and water delivery efficiency. And any carbon that we store in the soil, the humus is not returned to the atmosphere as part of the carbon cycle. And that's, of course, you know, what's been causing so many problems. Building 1% humus in the soil actually binds up 132 tonnes of CO2 that would otherwise be thickening the greenhouse blanket. Now, it's not too far till growers will get paid for the store carbon, and that becomes another win-win scenario. In fact, there are so many benefits associated with humus building it's kind of a, a shining example of the key universal principle of give and you will receive. It's kind of a thing of beauty to see a bountiful universe that will respond in kind. We give, we get back. We can't actually receive what we don't give is part of that principle. Humus doesn't just store moisture more efficiently than any other technology. It's also the best tool to retain nutrients. So let's have a little closer look at that side of the story. Humus is the only soil colloid that's equipped with sites to store both negatively charged minerals, called anions of course, and the positively charged minerals called cations. Cations can get stored on the clay colloid, but the humus colloid only can store these often very leachable uh, anions or very unstable anions. So that's really important for storage of things like, like nitrate nitrogen that leaches so readily, sulfur that almost leaches as readily, and the most leachable of the trace minerals, boron, all three of those can only store on humus. Notoriously unstable minerals like phosphorus, which tend to lock up in the soil at probably three quarters of what you put on, they can be stabilised through the formation of a phosphate-humus bond. So that's a pretty good story. It's also important to understand when we're talking about nutrition and minerals specifically that the delivery of minerals to the plant is largely a biological process. 
And basically, the higher your humus levels, the more active your soil biology and the more nutrient-dense your produce. Food can become a feast of forgotten flavours, and these flavours are directly related to the medicinal value of that food. And another side effect, improved soil structure is a really well-researched benefit of compost application. So soil aeration, soil porosity, crumb structure, all three of these things are enhanced. And compost is also a great food for soil life. Mycorrhizal fungi love compost. Earthworms return to composted soils, as well as some of the less visible creatures. So like I've sort of touched upon, compost is a very powerful microbial inoculum to restore your workforce. As we said, a teaspoon can be as many as five billion organisms with thousands of different species. And basically that's the concept of restoring biodiversity and the balance that comes with that. And the balance is part of the story of trying to create a disease suppressive soil. So how does that work? Well, basically it's these beneficials that can neutralize pathogens through competition for nutrients in space. It's kind of position, position, position around that root that's exuding glucose where everyone wants to be and the more good guys, the less space for bad guys. There's also the consumption of competitors. You might be familiar with trichoderma and its capacity to devour 32 different disease organisms. Well, there are other organisms and many of which will be found in compost that can consume competitors or compete with those competitors. There's the production of inhibitory compounds that these organisms can, in terms of managing pathogens. There's a phenomenon called induced disease resistance, and it's an immune-boosting phenomenon called systemic acquired resistance that increases with that biodiversity that you bring in. There's organisms that actually stimulate that response in the plant. As we mentioned, compost boosts both mycorrhizal fungi and earthworms. So basically, the minerals that are complex with humus, and this is important just from a fertilising strategy perspective, Minerals complex with humus and compost don't leach like water-soluble fertilisers usually do. Now, there's some African research that, again, I often cite, where when you put your minerals, whatever your mineral requirements are, they found that there was a 10 times increase in the uptake and utilisation of those minerals. In fact, they found you could use just 10% of the mineral requirements in some studies and get the same response as the full mineral dose when you put the microbes behind the minerals. And that's when I actually developed the term microbially enhanced nutrient delivery, the anagram of which, of course, is MEND, which is quite appropriate to describe this microbes behind the mineral phenomenon. Microbes also actually stimulate the plant to uptake more minerals. So there's a few things happening here. So there's a real good benefit with combining compost with fertilizers. They also stabilize slow release minerals in compost and they can help to avoid the plant overloads that sponsor pest pressure. And I'm thinking about nitrate packed low bricks plants as a good example. Now on my farms, I use a backhoe to blend the mineral requirements on the humates with the compost before every application. We use a belt spreader and we've got a little one ton compost spreader. And it just makes an, an obvious difference, particularly on one of the farms with low CC sandy soils. Okay, so let's get a bit more specific. Soon we'll talk about different composting techniques and I'll let you know what I think's best. But before then, let's look at the inputs we can use for composting. First point, I suppose, is animal manure. It's kind of an essential 
micro-rich component that supplies critically important nitrogen as part of the carbon to nitrogen ratio in composting, but also supplies several other minerals. It's usually the case that cattle manure is the best. If you analyse compost, cattle manure compost is generally a little superior. But if you need phosphorus, then you really need to be looking at chicken manure. Composted chicken manure, or chook manure as we call it in Australia, is the absolute most cost-effective and most plant-available way to deliver phosphorus. So only if you need phosphorus, chicken manure is cheap, much cheaper in this country than cow manure, and it makes a great source of phosphorus and a great compost. Other inputs, spoiled hay, orchard litter, feathers, stable straw is great stuff. You know, when you've got confined animals in Europe and so forth or in the US or Canada, that stable straw is a mess of urine, and poo and so forth. It's a wonderful microbial stew, perfect material for composting. Sawdust and shavings, municipal mulch, in my neck of the woods we can pick that up for free or maybe seven bucks a tonne. So I've got a a seven tonne tipper that we use for that purpose to pick up that uh, ground prunings and so forth from the town and they screen it quite well so there's no very little rubbish in there. Spoiled foods from restaurants or whatever or spoiled fruit and veggies are good inputs. You can even, as some of my growers do, they'll grow a cover crop, you know, a really large, bulky carbon-based cover crop like jumbo sorghum, for example. They grow that specifically to cut and compost. Soft rock phosphate is a really good input, but again, only if you need phosphate. Now, this material has got a dual purpose. Obviously, it enriches the compost with calcium, phosphorus, silica and clay, And the kind of microbial hothouse of composting makes the pea content much more available. So it breaks the bond between calcium and phosphorus during that biological hothouse that is composting. But the clay component is a whole other story. It really, really can extend the life of the compost or at least the humus within the compost. This is a really important finding from a guy called Siegfried Lubke and he's the founder of probably the most popular commercial composting technique that's called controlled microbial composting or CMC composting. He discovered that if we can include about 6% of a friable clay material as we layer up that compost, then we see the formation of clay humus crumbs driven by fungi largely during the composting process. And that creates something called stable humus and stable humus lasts for a minimum of 35 years in the soil. Now, it strikes me that if you're going to go to the effort of composting, you might as well be creating humours that will probably still be there after you've passed on. I mean, I never compost without this clay component. Soft rock is perfect because it's so fine and friable, but if you've got enough phosphate in the soil, then it's not an option. So then you've got to look at sort of a high clay soil additive Incidentally, a clay, either soft rock or another clay, also can help to stabilise the ammonium nitrogen in compost. So there are multiple benefits with that particular additive at 6% again. Brown coal, if you can source it and it's close to you, contains 68% carbon. And this is a, a complex material that also can encourage fungal proliferation. It's a complex carbohydrate that fungi thrive upon. Brown coal, of course, is also the source of humic and fulvic acids, and both of these amazing stimulants can be released during the composting process. So it's a really good additive, if you can source it cheaply, to be adding brown coal at the rate of about 20%, and you'll have a high-carbon compost with very high levels 
of humic and fulvic acid. Now, zeolite is another potential additive. It's kind of a honeycomb material that can actually never break down. It's got no use-by date in research to date. So you're basically adding a permanent new storehouse into your soil that will store both moisture and minerals. And, and two of the main pore spaces in this porous aluminosilicate material happen to be the exact size of the ammonium and the potassium ions. So you just stabilise two of the most unstable minerals. And the good thing about zeolite is that it'll continue doing that in your soil for the rest of your life and beyond. So zeolite you add to compost if you choose, again at the rate of about 6%. Now why would we put crusher dust, the basalt crusher dust? Some say, yeah, it's got some silica, it's got a lot of silica and there's a whole story about silica, but realistically, unless it's micronized, that silica is not hugely available in the soil. So what other reason would we use for adding basalt crusher dust? It comes down to something called paramagnetic stimulation. And in the compost, that stimulation has been literally shown to supercharge your pile. I'd better explain this fascinating concept of paramagnetism so that you can better understand why you might use an additive like this. So it comes back to this wonderful scientist called Professor Phil Callahan. In an attempt to explain the superior performance of volcanic soils, Phil Callahan theorised that, and then he actually proved that these soils have the capacity to attract, like an antenna, attract an atmospheric energy called extra long frequency radio waves or ELF radio waves, attract that energy from the atmosphere into the soil where that energy is then converted into tiny measurable light particles called biophotons. Now, this basically effectively provides light to the microbes and they thrive accordingly. That's why microbial biomass is typically much higher in a compost where paramagnetic crusher dust has been added. Now, basalt is the best of the volcanic rocks from this perspective, but it's important that you understand levels can vary hugely in that crusher dust. It's, apparently, it's all about where the original magma from which basalt was derived, from where it came from, you know, how close it was to deep down. The surface stuff's nowhere near as paramagnetic, so it's where that magna came from. So huge variation and Phil took the guesswork out of it because he developed a machine called the PCSM machine that we have here at Nutritech and and you can buy it, it's about five or $600. Actually, you can buy it from Pike Lab Supplies from memory and that can measure crusher dust. It can measure something called CGS in crusher dust and soils. And basically we found it's kind of like a fertility meter. The higher the reading, the better the soil. And certainly it applies, obviously, to volcanic soils. But what you're looking for when you're trying to source a good crusher dust, it must exceed 1,600 CGS on the machine to be of value on the farm or in your compost. So we offer a free service for those of you locally who if you want to check something from your local quarry, send it and send 100 grams to us. If it turns out to have high levels, then you've got access to a pretty cheap fertiliser for as little as $15 a tonne. We've seen, just to add a couple of extra things, we've seen trebling of nodules on legumes, for example, in the presence of rock dust. It can be quite a special inexpensive fertiliser. So once again, the basalt dust is added to the compost at no more than 6%. I always put this input into my compost on the farm. So we've got a really good local basalt quarry and I will cart with my seven-ton tipper 
four hours up to the apple farm from the subtropical farm just to have it on hand for addition to our composts. Okay, so we're about to move on to the human health segment of the Nutrition Farming Podcast. If you remember last month, we looked at the remarkable cell cleansing strategy called autophagy. And this episode, we're going to kind of continue that journey towards a longer, happier, healthier life. And we're going to look at the destructive power of substances called free radicals. These are the substances that basically create the oxidative stress that's considered to be the root cause of most of our degenerative diseases. Now, when we hear the word degenerative, for many of us, it sort of suggests that we're going to degenerate over time. And this is sometimes seen as kind of a natural outcome of the aging process. But what we need to recognize is that we now understand that degeneration is actually a progressive process and that there's an intergenerational connection. So For example, a diet of heavily processed, chemically stabilised, denatured food that was consumed by one generation seriously impacts the health outcomes of the following generation. So, for example, today's kids are expected to live for a shorter time than their parents. This has never happened before. This is the first time in the history of mankind that the new generation lives for a shorter period than the previous generation. Never happened before. So I'll give you a simple example of progressive degeneration. I want you to think about the current number of children with glasses and braces. Now, in my childhood, in a class of 41 kids back in New Zealand, we had one child with braces and another with glasses. But today, the number of children requiring corrective lenses is actually somewhere around 40%. And similarly, about 45% of our kids now require orthodontics. So the need for braces you can actually see it as a direct measure of the cumulative impact of poor nutrition. Let's look at some famous work by a guy called Dr. Weston Price. So he was a nutritional anthropologist who conducted multi-nation research into nutrition relative to health and associated happiness. He travelled all over the world doing this work. One of his first things that he looked at was jawbones and the teeth that they housed. So jawbones filled with healthy, well-positioned teeth were seen as a really potent indicator of the overall physical health of that culture. So the need for braces simply relates to a lack of the nutrition required to fill the jaw out, to maximise jaw development, to allow the balanced and even spacing of teeth. So if your diet was substandard, then your baby had a poor start and the downhill slide progressives. So let me get back on track. I'm already digressing. I talked last month about the baby boomers' battle for an extra decade or two of extended life. So let's have a little closer look at that situation. Now, personally, I feel that we should be striving to peak at about 70 and then hopefully remain at that summit until we finally shuffle off. I mean, if our genetic potential exceeds 100 years and it does, then 70 seems like a pretty nice maturation point. And then ideally, our remaining 30 years should be a celebration and sort of sharing of our accumulated wisdom as we kind of wind down in a blaze of glory. But in reality, our last couple of decades are often characterised by more pain than gain. Unfortunately, many of us will splutter to our grand finale in an ocean of pharmaceutical props and specialist advice. And our sharing is often limited to our bowls buddies in the retirement community where we waste that lifetime of accumulated wisdom. I guess you've 
guess by now that I'm not a big fan of retirement. But there are many factors that contribute to a happy, healthy, extended productivity. We talked about the huge importance of autophagy last month, but here, as I said, we're going to look at the story of free radicals relative to the longevity story. What we understand now is that the free radical theory of ageing now has much more scientific support than any of the other theories of ageing, like the genetic theory or the hormonal explanations of this process. In fact, every degenerative disease has a free radical connection. And so the message here is that there are many gains to hearing this story that extend beyond longevity when we talk about how we can quell these free radical fires. So let's get down to business. What exactly are free radicals? So free radicals are atoms with unpaired electrons that can become rampantly destructive in their search to kind of reclaim balance. They actually become like wrecking balls to neighbouring cells. Free radicals are actually a natural byproduct of breathing, which produces oxidants, and, and a percentage of these oxygens become free radicals. And they actually serve an important function in the whole process of cell signalling, but we were supposed to always maintain a plentiful supply of antioxidants to constantly neutralise their destructive tendencies when there's too many of them. So antioxidants actually donate electrons to those free radicals and that satisfies their hunger for balance and turns the heat down, I suppose you could say. So environmental toxins particularly those that involve oxidisation. So we're talking about things like cigarette smoke and hugely we're talking about smog and its impact on our health. That can provide a massive influx of free radicals that can pretty much overwhelm our capacity to douse the flame and that's when the problems begin. Heart disease, cancer and stroke in that order are our largest killers and all of them have got a powerful free radical link. The modern medical machine often dismisses this connection, and that's because doctors have so little training in nutrition. I'll give you a good example. The demonization of cholesterol, for example, is really largely related to this misunderstanding of the link that I've mentioned. The so-called bad cholesterol, which is called low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, is considered to be the main villain. This is actually an essential nutrient that's a really important transport vehicle for things like carotenes and vitamin E, but it's also much smaller than the other form, the so-called good cholesterol called HDL. And that smaller size provides a greater surface area for free radical attack, particularly if our diet is lacking in antioxidants or if we drink and smoke or whatever. And then we see that oxidized LDL becomes a genuine artery-clogging liability. So what's the answer? The answer is to increase your intake of antioxidants and also to avoid food that contains oxidised LDLs and to avoid that at all costs. So what foods are included in those things that we avoid? Well, the cholesterol content of food is oxidised every time you put it in a microwave, so that's something to avoid. Powdered milk and powdered eggs that are found so commonly in things like baked goods or low-fat milk, both feature oxidised LDL. That's because the heat required to convert them to powder oxidises the LDL component. Now, eggs scramble for more than 60 seconds, so that's maybe what an egg timer was designed for. You stop it before 60 seconds, they become a problem. 
And things like margarine and deep fried fast food are other major sources of this artery clogging oxidized LDL that we all should be trying to avoid. Now, while we're on the subject, I'm not going to let it go there. Cholesterol is not a poison. It's a hugely important antioxidant in its own right. It's also absolutely necessary to make bile. It's most importantly, it's the central building block of your hormone cascade. So a lack of cholesterol means a lack of testosterone, for example. And that's the reason that we see this libido loss that's so commonly reported when we take the lipid-lowering drugs. Now, the ironic thing here is that we're taking a supposed heart-protective drug and it's shutting down a hugely heart-protective hormone. Testosterone governs muscle integrity. So external visible muscles begin to visibly sag when you're lacking testosterone. You see that little sagging under your arms, for example. But you've got to remember that you've got this hugely important internal muscle that pumps your life's blood. And it's not a good story when that muscle loses integrity. There's a major link between testosterone deficiency and heart attacks, for example. The story continues, or the irony rather, continues because the mode of action of the cholesterol-lowering drugs is to shut down something called mevalonate. And this is the building block for cholesterol. You shut down mevalonate, you can't build cholesterol, and that's supposedly a good thing. Well, herein lies the problem. Mevalonate is also the building block for something called coenzyme Q10. And this is a nutrient that's absolutely critically important for heart health. It's involved in the energy generation, the mitochondria of cells, and you don't need much more energy than something that goes boomph, 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 maybe slightly slower, every second of your life. It doesn't make a lot of sense that we spent $23 billion on the lipid-lowering drugs last year, but it's one of those silly things that we continue to do. So returning to antioxidants before I get too lost in my digressions, it's not just heart health that can be prevented by antioxidants. An increase in these nutritions in our diet can have a protective effect against a whole range of degenerative diseases. Now, free radical attacks on DNA heralds the cellular changes, for example, that can become cancer. Free radicals scour lesions into arteries. They're linked to things like arteriosclerosis. They damage the massive network of tiny blood vessels servicing the brain, so they're linked to neurodegenerative disorders. In fact, they're linked to the inflammation that lies behind every degenerative dis disorder. So hopefully it's now clear that free radical damage can make us pretty miserable and shorten our lives. So how do we prevent that outcome? It's all about antioxidants. Now, the body makes many of these molecules to quench free radical fires, but in our quite toxic world, we invariably also need dietary support. There are actually thousands of different antioxidant substances found in food, but the biggest players include things like vitamin C, which is water-soluble, and the fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin E, A and D, the carotenes and minerals like selenium and manganese, then there are nutrients that I already mentioned, like coenzyme Q10, alpha-lipoic acid, and then a really huge range of powerful substances called phenolic compounds. We're going to talk about each of those. Now, there's no doubt that antioxidants found in food can prevent a wide range of degenerative diseases. There's countless studies to prove that. But there's also some studies showing that high-dose supplements can actually be counterproductive. I'm thinking about some of the vitamin E studies using alpha tocopherol 
And I'm thinking about a particular carotene study which reported an increase in lung cancer associated with high-dose beta-carotene supplementation. Now, pharmaceutical companies will often seize upon these quite rare examples of supplement failure to kind of strengthen their biased argument that vitamins just deliver expensive urine. So I reckon it's worth having a brief look at why these isolated substances sometimes fail. And there are two key reasons. Number one, antioxidants often work in concert with other nutrients. This is part of what makes food medicine. I'll give you a good example. The humble Brazil nut is that example. It's generally accepted that 200 micrograms per day is the most productive rate for a mineral called selenium. So that's the supplementation rate, 200 micrograms per day. Now, Brazil nuts contain 25 micrograms per nut, which is by far the highest level of selenium found in any food. But what we've found, or what has been found, is that four Brazil nuts per day, which delivers 100 micrograms, outperforms 200 micrograms as a supplement. And why is that? I mean, it's half the amount. That's because Brazil nuts contain several selenium synergists, or what are called cofactors. And the most important of those is vitamin E. So selenium is packed with vitamin E, which pushes the uptake and the availability of selenium. So that's just how food works. That's why food is medicine. For example, a cup full of strawberries contains just 80 milligrams of vitamin C, and yet it outperforms a vitamin C supplement containing 500 milligrams. And that's because strawberries have high levels of polyphenols, and polyphenols work in concert with vitamin C to make vitamin C more efficient. The second reason for the questionable performance of some supplements relates to the dumbing down of nutrition in these isolates. So B-group vitamins, for example, they're never found alone. You don't find just B6 or B12 or B3 in food because they bounce off each other. So the whole concept is there. And basically the presence of that full package positively impacts the performance of the individual components. That's why you take a B-complex along with your B12 if you're a vegetarian or your B6 if you're a stressed person and needs to compensate for your loss of B6 due to that anxiety. There are multiple carotenes that are synergistic with each other and yet we isolate just beta-carotene and wonder why it sometimes fails. The most recent example of this dumbing down relates to vitamin E. We basically supplement largely with something called alpha-tocopherol and yet New research shows us that there are eight forms of vitamin E and the new research specifically is that they appear to all work together. So there are four tocopherols, not just alpha tocopherol, there are four tocopherols and there are four tocotrienols. And there's actually emerging evidence that the tocotrienols might be about 40 times more potent than the tocopherols and yet they're completely ignored in most supplements. Cooking oils like canola, sunflower, safflower and so forth are a really big source of free radicals because they're partially hydrogenated to extend their shelf life. So something like coconut oil is a vastly superior cooking oil. However, the highest quality of all cooking oils or the most advantageous of all cooking oils is something called red palm oil. Now, red palm oil contains the highest known level of carotenes and the highest level of all eight forms of vitamin E of any food. In fact, it's got far higher levels of the tocotrienols that I mentioned than the next closest food source. So 
it's a healthy fat, it's delicious, and just like coconut oil, it can actually sponsor weight loss. I mean, how does a fat, how does a saturated fat possibly sponsor weight loss? Well, both coconut oil and red palm oil speed metabolism and that burns more calories. So it's pretty cool in that context. Red palm oil is now put in capsules and marketed as a full-spectrum vitamin E supplement. Actually, this oil is so high in antioxidants that you can't oxidise it during cooking, and that's completely unique. Of course, I have to mention at this point that we've got a product in my NTS Health range. You you can go to ntshealth.com.au to check it out. And it's important for me to mention that this is an organic form that's sourced from South America, not from Malaysia or Indonesia with all of the orangutan habitat implications that come with those two countries. And that NTS product is called Red Gold, just in case you're interested. Now, I want to talk for a moment about my personal favourite antioxidant, just in case you're not familiar with it. And I think you'll be a bit excited when you hear the story. So my favourite carotenoid, or actually antioxidant full stop, is sourced from algae. And it's also the source of the pink flesh in salmon. That powerhouse antioxidant is called astaxanthin. And the highest levels are found in the muscles of Pacific salmon. And that's thought to energise their kind of heroic upstream odyssey to their spawning grounds each year. You know how they jump up waterfalls and so forth. And that's thought to be the source of that energy. But just one note, just digressing again, don't expect to source this protective compound from farm salmon because they've usually been injected with pink dye to fake the presence of that nutrient that they simply don't have because they're more likely to eat GM soy protein than to ever consume wild algae. So they never are going to turn pink and they're not going to contain astaxanthin. So astaxanthin is an absolutely amazing antioxidant and an anti-inflammatory, particularly when it's sourced actually from algae, where you supplemented about nine milligrams per day. Now, nine milligrams is far, far more than could be sourced from a salmon steak. Nothing wrong with the salmon steak, it's great, but for a strong supplement effect, the powder that you can source from the algae is the way to go. In fact, at that higher rate, it can reduce inflammation as effectively as the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs without all of the stomach-based side effects. So it's really, really something special. There are many, many studies on the anti-aging and the anti-inflammatory impact of astaxanthin, and it can also increase the release of human growth hormone. Remember, we talked about that last month, and it can increase the production of a very protective substance called superoxide dismutase. So it's got a bunch of things. And then we can see it also has really good skin health potential. And one study conducted by Arakani Kumi in the Journal of Japanese Cosmetic Science, that researcher referred to something he called an internal sunscreen when he reported on the effectiveness of this antioxidant to reduce UV-induced wrinkles. Now, I'm sure there are many people interested in that concept. There's also a really exciting synergy between red palm oil and astaxanthin. In a study published in the Journal of Clinical Biochemistry and Nutrition, Seiki Kawa and some of his colleagues reported significant improvement in memory and cognition after 12 weeks of supplementation with this duo. The algae from which astaxanthin is derived is called Hematococcus pluvialis. 
So that's Haematococcus pluvialis. You can actually Google the powder and buy it online and it's really something to experiment with. It's always most cost-effective to source that extract and powder rather than capsules. And just finishing that story, in 2019, a US researchers reported reductions in depression and marked mood elevations following supplementation with red palm oil and astaxanthin. If we think this through, of course, the brain is 60% fat on a dry weight basis, and so it makes perfect sense that fat-soluble nutrients like carotenes and like all eight forms of vitamin E could have such a favourable impact. So let's have a closer look at the concept of food as medicine. There's a really invaluable guideline to help you determine the relative antioxidant value of foods that you might choose. That guideline is called the ORAC scale or the ORAC score. And it was developed from a 12-year research project that actually concluded back in 1991. So ORAC stands for Oxygen Radical Absorbance Capacity. And of course it refers to the capacity of a food or a herb or whatever to quell free radical fires. Now, just returning to astaxanthin just for one moment, that's the single most powerful antioxidant in the world, hence my fascination with that substance. In fact, it has an ORAC value of 2,822,200, and nothing even comes close to that. That's 700 times more potent than blueberries. It's 6,000 times more potent than vitamin C, 550 times more potent than vitamin E. Astaxanthin is something truly special. So let's look at some of the defensive eating strategies we might look at and some of the food choices that can seriously impact our future and well-being. We're going to look at seven strategies for proactive protection. Number one is really important. Number one is make every plate a rainbow. This is perhaps the most simple yet most important of all the guidelines I'm about to share with you. Now, here's how it works. Pigments or colours are antioxidants and they all work differently in our body. Orange carotenes, for example, are fat-soluble and they're designed to boost the heart and the brain, which are fat-dependent effectively. Green chlorophyll is water-soluble. It's designed to cleanse the water-based blood that courses through our veins. Each colour offers a different benefit and the more intense the colour, the more profound the benefit. If you can design every meal to contain the full range of greens, yellows, blues, reds, purples at their most deeply intense you always look for the most richly and most intense colors when you're shopping well then you've covered all the bases and you really are destined to reap the rewards i mean the plants develop those pigments to protect themselves from uv radiation how do they stand there from five in the morning where all carbon-based life forms suffer free radical problems associated with uv radiation well Pigments is their huge protective secret and it just turns out those pigments are actually our most powerful antioxidants and that's not accidental in the way I view the world. So I've previously discussed the multiple benefits of consuming lacto-fermented food, including the finding that nutrients are five times better utilised following the pre-digestion that comes with fermentation. Well, that principle also applies to the increased utilisation of antioxidants. So if you can include the full spectrum of colours in what I call a rainbow sauerkraut, then you've effectively created a probiotic superfood. 
I don't know if you remember, but my sauerkraut recipe included things like red cabbage, green cabbage, red, green, yellow and orange capsicums, red and yellow carrots, red onions, white onions, spring onions, parsley, chilies, garlic and ginger. Now, I defy anyone not to like the taste of that probiotic. It's really, really delicious. So number two is to eat according to the ORAC guidelines. So ORAC charts can be easily downloaded from the internet, but it's really important to compare apples with apples. So the published levels are often based upon consumption of about 100 grams. So if we look at that 100 gram guideline, cloves, for example, are really, really high. They've got this exceptional ORAC score of 300,000. But the reality is how much can you eat of cloves, of, of crushed clove? Perhaps a couple of grams if you're lucky. That's about as much as you could stomach. So in that instance, based on that 300,000 and you only ate two grams, your ORAC consumption is somewhere around 6,000. Now, in contrast, red delicious apples have got an ORAC score of 4,200. And it's not hard to consume 200 grams. That is an apple, basically, in a sitting, which means you just had an intake of 8,400 ORAC units, which, of course, is a better story. Similarly, blueberries have got a score of 4,600, but, you know, a snack of blueberries might be 50 grams. So the apple, again, becomes a better deal because your apple was, was 8,000, as I mentioned. And that's, of course going to be even more true if the apple was grown at my apple farm at Sandthorpe, my nutrition farm's apple project. In that context, it's quite important to realise that ORAC levels vary hugely and it's based upon how that food was produced. When we say blueberries can be 4,600, well, they can be as low as 1,000 or they can be as high as 7,000 and 4,600 is the average. So it depends on how you grew them. In a recent UK study, for example, it was found that some oranges actually had no vitamin C at all. Now, that kind of nutrition mismanagement is, is usually linked to something like high nitrogen that has shut down the uptake of building blocks of vitamin C, things like copper. And so, you know, you chucked a bit of urea at the crop and you produced crap food, basically. And it's really important to understand that. It's all about how well the food was grown. Now, herbs feature the highest of all ORAC scores. And that's a pretty powerful vindication of the healing potential of herbalism, of course. But even then, we've got to consider the amount that we can comfortably consume when we're comparing, you know, if we want to have a genuine comparison. Dried rosemary and thyme, for example, both feature scores that exceed 150,000. It's pretty impressive. Cinnamon and oregano are both over 200,000. By contrast, turmeric powder is 160,000. So again, when we look at the others, we say, okay, it's going to be pretty hard to consume more than one or two grams of these spices. But in my instance, for example, I'm such a fan of turmeric, but I regularly consume 15 grams in one sitting of my freeze-dried turmeric powder, put it in a glass of juice, it tastes really nice. I do that for the anti-inflammatory impact. That delivers over 20,000 ORAC units, and boy, that packs a punch. Now, Remember the research linked to curcumin, the active ingredient in turmeric. It basically protects from really good research, over 600 published papers in the last few years, to show that curcumin protects from the top 10 diseases that kill us most commonly. So there's a good reason for me to take it every day. 
the Organic Nutrient Dense Nutrition Farms product. I'm going to advertise again. Why not? You're getting a free podcast. I'm going to talk about some of my passions. Uh, my Nutrition Farm product that I grew and harvested and so forth is called Curculife. And again, you can source that from the NTS Health store at ntshealth.com.au. So we'll move on now and we'll talk about the power of phenolics. Phenolic compounds are amongst the most beneficial and most widespread of all antioxidants and they're found actually in abundance in three of our most popular pleasures. Now, I thought that the antioxidant hype behind chocolate was just the propaganda of chocoholics seeking to kind of justify their addiction until I checked the science. And then to my amazement, I discovered that cacao has been used as a beneficial herb for centuries and once again, there's a knowing behind that traditional wisdom. The OREC score of cacao powder is a whopping 95,000. And dark chocolate with 70% cacao can be as high as 20,000 per 100 grams, which, you know, is a nice serving of chocolate. That's pretty good news for the chocoholics amongst us, but there's one important proviso that you really need to understand. There's a compound in milk which can actually completely neutralise the antioxidant benefit. So 20,000 becomes zero if there's as much as a thimble full of milk present in that dark chocolate. And the same thing actually applies to black tea. I'll talk about that in a moment. For some reason, most of the chocolate manufacturers have yet to realise that fact. So you need to become a bit of a label Nazi to discover what brands to buy. So the Whitakers brand from New Zealand, they seem to have cottoned on. And there's a handful of European brands are amongst the very few chocolates where manufacturers seem to have recognised that their product can be a medicine rather than a lolly. It simply involves the removal of milk and sort of hopefully some of the sugar. Green tea is another reservoir of phenolic compounds, wonderful stuff. It's receiving huge levels of scientific support for what the Easterners have known for a millennium. But even though green tea, of course, is amazing stuff with all of its antioxidant accolades, black tea is also only slightly less in phenolic compounds than green tea. But the moment you've put even a smidgen of milk into that tea, you've effectively turned a super healthy drink into just a caffeine kick that does little more than stress your adrenals. So again, we don't know what it is even, the compound in milk, but that group of phenolic compounds found in tea, found in dark chocolate, are totally neutralised in the presence of milk. So you just got to understand that and learn not to use milk. You can use things like, I like a combination of almond and coconut together and you can get some nice oat milks and so forth if you need milk in your coffee. We're going to talk about what's often called the workhorse of detoxification, the workhorse of all the antioxidants. Uh, and that, of course, is the wonderful vitamin C. So Dr. Linus Pauling was the only solo recipient of two Nobel Prizes. No one else ever did that. There were a couple that did it together, but no one did it single-handedly, not two Nobel Prizes. And he contended that his discovery of the profound potential of high-dose vitamin C actually saved his life. He surmised that you could peel oranges until your wrists seized, but you couldn't supply enough vitamin C to neutralise the flood of free radicals in this kind of brave new world we've created. He realised that 74,000 registered chemicals and countless other environmental contaminants combined to create what is essentially an unnatural level of free radical pressure 
and that requires something more than just a food-based response. And so there are now, of course, many well-researched studies into the benefits of supplementing higher doses of vitamin C and the magic figure seems to be 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C each day. You can treble that rate in times of trouble but normally if you're taking 3,000 or 10,000 for that matter, that's kind of the max rate that you take, it can't do any harm. You can split it into the three. You know, if it's 3,000, you're going to have three doses of 1,000. If it's 10,000, you're going to have three doses of slightly more than 3,000 and you take those three separate doses always with food. So breakfast, lunch and dinner, for example. But there are two things about vitamin C that you should be aware of. A good vitamin C supplement should always contain bioflavonoids because it simply doesn't work very well without them. Now, just in a natural context, if you're eating citrus as a vitamin C source, it's always a great idea to consume the white pith layering on the inside of the skin because that's where the all-important bioflavonoids are housed. So a good vitamin C supplement should also have kind of a complex of alkalizing minerals to help neutralize the raw acidity of ascorbic acid, which can be quite harsh on gut organisms, for example. You know, you're trying to mimic how vitamin C is found in nature. Now, I'm going to have one more little advertisement. Biospark, the product I developed in my NTS health range, is a really good vitamin C supplement. It qualifies on all of the things we mentioned. It's a soluble powder that's added to a glass of water, about a teaspoon for your 3,000 milligrams. And it's a pleasant kind of citrus-flavoured supplement that can seriously help with reducing free radical pressure. Now, one other thing, just to conclude our little story on vitamin C, I think I should mention the potential of something called vitamin C infusions. There's a little bit of scientific controversy about the value of infusing 30 to 50 grams. That's 30,000 to 50,000 milligrams. That's seriously high doses. And that's basically injected directly into your blood. You have a bag fed through directly into your blood over a half-hour period. But there's a growing body of evidence relative to speeding the recovery from COVID-19, for example. A 2020 study just last year entitled Intravenous Vitamin C for Reduction of Cytokine Storm and Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome concluded with some really strong suggestions that we need to do some urgent evaluation of this super promising COVID-19 strategy. And the Chinese are doing just that. And so are the Canadians as we speak. There have been several studies confirming benefits relative to slowing tumour growth and cancer. And many people have utilised that. Go to the Philippines and have their 50,000 milligrams, 50 grams over a period of a few weeks on a weekly basis. And there's studies showing that vitamin C infusions improve chemotherapy response, which is important. And they enhance the immune system. And there's been other studies that have shown a fast-track recovery from life-threatening sepsis, you know, when your whole body goes septic, basically, uh, and bacteria take over. So it's wonderful in that instance. In fact, it may be one of the most promising tools relative to neutralising sepsis. I've had a personal experience where, you know, last year I had this bout of Q fever. Oh, my goodness, that was a hard one. It was probably the sickest I've ever been And, you know, even though I got over it in a few weeks, it sort of sucked every breath of my energy. And and many weeks later, I was still struggling to kind of reclaim anything like my normal drive. So someone told me about a a local clinic on the Sunshine Coast here, and I had a single intravenous dose of 30 grams of vitamin C. And I'm telling you, it was like switching on a light. I'm a really, really big fan of that. It was something I'll use should I need it for certain in the future. 
So to conclude, let's look at a few, four or five key antioxidant strategies, just a few of my findings that I can share with you. So berries are all good. They've all got good levels of antioxidants and blueberries are often touted as the king of the crop. Blueberries have got an ORAC score of 4,600 and raspberries are somewhere around the same mark, but there's a fruit called black raspberries that absolutely lap the field in terms of ORAC scores. They've got an ORAC score of 19,200. I seriously wonder why the commercial potential of that's not been realised. I've never seen a black raspberry out there in the marketplace. I've seen it in the wild, but I'm going to have a look at it myself. Santa would be perfect for growing a crop like that. Now, number two, I'm a fan of sweet potatoes. I have them several nights a week. I just basically peel them and slice them up. It takes about one minute and put them in my air fryer for 14 minutes. They're absolutely delicious and they've got quite a good antioxidant score and they've got a low glycemic index. So they don't pump sugars that speed the production of insulin. So they've got some real gains on that front compared to potatoes. But while I was researching for this podcast, I discovered that the ORAC score of sweet potatoes is actually three times higher if you don't peel them, if you leave the skin on. And that's the case with potatoes as well, not three times, but it's quite significantly higher. Actually, I've previously mentioned, and I'll share a little new finding relative to that, I've mentioned that the favourite of all Australian vegetables, the potatoes, actually have a higher glycemic index than white table sugar, which is not a good story. And I suggested a couple of strategies. I suggested applying chia seeds to the potato and that lowers the GI from 95, sugar's 70, potatoes are 95, believe it or not, but it lowers it from 95 down to 35. But I recently made another discovery I'd like to share. If we cook and cool our potatoes overnight, then they turn into this thing called a resistant starch, which is really, really good for our bowel organs. Basically, it gets to the top after your gut because it's resistant, and there becomes this amazing prebiotic to improve bowel health. And it also has a low GI, so you completely change our favourite vegetable if you cook it and leave it overnight and let it cool. The secret is here is you can't reheat it, though. So it sounds like there might be some delicious potato salads on my menu in the future now that I've discovered that. Similarly, if we heat and cool rice and then eat the rice cold, the exact same thing happens. We turn rice into a resistant starch that becomes much, much more beneficial. So it's a great strategy, I'm thinking, to cook up a pot of brown rice on a Sunday night and then brown rice, of course, much more nutritional value than the white, so I'll choose that, but then use that as a base for all sorts of meals during the week, but preferably not heating it, just keeping it cold so that you've got that benefit. Now, let's look at nuts because I'm a big fan of nuts. There's so much nutritional value. Pecans are the absolute king of nuts. Now, the ORAC score is unparalleled as far as nuts go. It's 17,500. Now, let's look at that relative to other nuts. 17,500, that compares to cashews at about 1,500. Almonds are one of the higher nuts at about 4,200 and Maccas are lower than that. Now I, I think I probably understand why I have this same large flock of white cockatoos that turn up perfectly on schedule every year to feast on the majority of the pecans. I've got three large trees in the garden at one of my farms and I love pecans and they just come and they scream abuse at me like, what are you doing taking our nuts uh, when they turn up and now I know why. So number four in our final little list, we all know the story about the health value of red wine relative to the presence of this 
wonderful phenolic compound called resveratrol. It's often called the French paradox that these people have such low levels of heart disease despite their passion for butter and cream. And it's the heart protective power of this antioxidant that's often accredited with this resilience. Now, I often drink white wine, but I just discovered during this research that white wine's got an ORAC score of 390, while the best of the reds, which is Cabernet Sauvignon, ranks over 10 times higher with an ORAC score of 4,500. So red teeth, here I come. I'm going to develop a taste for red wine. Number five, glutathione. I think we've touched upon it in previous talks, but the most powerful nutrient for your most important organ called your liver, the most powerful nutrient for liver support, and it teams with the trace mineral called selenium to form glutathione peroxidase, which is our most important antioxidant enzyme system. Now, where do we get glutathione from is what this little hint is about. The highest source of glutathione is something called whey protein concentrate. Now, that food used to be called poor man's glutathione, but is now considered to be actually superior to actual glutathione tablets. It's often the case, give the body the building blocks rather than the finished substance because whey protein concentrate contains the very high levels of the three amino acids that the body then uses to form glutathione and you're better to give the building blocks than the actual supplement. So the body doesn't get lazy, essentially. Now, many of you have probably heard of the South African, the favourite South African drink called rooibos tea. It contains a similar antioxidant component to green tea, almost identical ORAC score, but it lacks the caffeine component found in green tea. And that caffeine component can actually counter some of the antioxidant benefits that come with green tea. So you can make this really delicious summer drink. You take six organic rooibos tea bags. Organic tea bags you can buy for like four bucks for a pack of 60, but you take six of those put them in two litres of boiling water and include the juice of four lemons. And then you might sweeten it with some stevia or some honey. Let the blend cool down before you shove it in the fridge, refrigerate it, chill it down. And then in the summer heat, you can come in and drink a whole two litres that you want because you're going to have a massive antioxidant hit when you do that. It's going to be better than almost anything else you could drink as a refreshing drink in summer. And interestingly, lemons have always been sort of considered to be the top of the citrus fruit in terms of ORAC score. But they also contain the lemon polyphenol called ereocytin. And that substance is generating really serious interest relative to anti-aging. So lemons are good things. Finally, lycopene. Now that's a carotene that's been shown to sponsor apoptosis, which is cell death, of course, in cancer cells. So it's a pretty big story. It's particularly protective when we talk about the prostate gland. And of course, that's the part of our body that's proving so much of a problem for so many of us. In fact, prostate cancer has become the largest killer of men in this country. So where do you get lycopene? Tomatoes are a really good source of this nutrient, but you would think, okay, well, I'll just juice or I'll eat raw tomatoes. Raw things are always better. In this case, that's not the story. It's much better to cook them before you consume them because that breaks the cell wall and releases the lycopene. And it's also a good concept to add a little oil like olive oil because lycopene is fat-soluble and that will boost the delivery of that nutrient. So Italian spaghetti sauces are perfect for that purpose because they've got tomatoes cooked with oil, of course. However, it's probably worth the effort and the tiny cost of making your own sauce with either fresh organic tomatoes or with canned organic tomatoes. 
which are about 20 cents more expensive, basically tomatoes, we work with them all over the world, they're a really chemically intensive crop. So, you know, you're going to feed your kids the spaghetti, for God's sake, dodge the contaminants with the organic option, combine a bit of garlic and capsicum and maybe basil with that little bit of olive oil and you've produced your own prostate-protecting medicine without the contaminants of the commercial sources. So another really good source of lycopene is watermelon juice. That's what the red colour in watermelon is. But don't choose the hybridised seedless variety. I mean, how do you achieve a seedless watermelon? You create a hybrid that can't uptake manganese. I want you to understand how important manganese is in the equation because, you know, if you don't have it, you can't even make seed. Well, everyone sells seed. You're selling wheat, you're selling seeds, you're selling fruit, you're selling seed. So manganese... It's hugely important, of course, glyphosate shuts down manganese. So if you're using glyphosate, make sure you foliar spray with manganese to compensate for that. The second story with the seeds found in watermelons is that the highest source of zinc, which is hugely prostate protective, the highest source, natural source or plant-based source, rather, is pumpkin seeds. Well, watermelons are just fractionally lower. So you take that seed, well, it's not just zinc, it's magnesium, it's iron, it's omega-3 fatty acids, all of which are recognised prostate protectors, and you put them in a high-powered blender with the meat of the watermelon. It doesn't affect the flavour of all those seeds. They just get micronized into that delicious red drink, and you've got this wonderful prostate-protective drink for summer when the watermelons are available. Okay, so I guess it's time to wrap up our health segment for this month. I hope you found something of value there. I hope you now better understand my concept of defensive eating. It's not really difficult to make every plate a rainbow, to dump the junk cooking oils like sunflower, safflower and canola and replace them with things like coconut oil or red palm oil. I mean, drinking red wine, rooibos tea or watermelon juice while snacking on dark chocolate and maybe activated pecans is hardly a sacrifice and I wish you every success. Thanks. Okay, so it's... Humour time again. I don't, know, I don't know what you people out there think about these jokes. This one's getting a bit extreme when I have to actually have a break after telling it because it's so hard on the voice as you're about to find out. So let's get started. A city entrepreneur was holidaying in the country when he saw a sign on the farm gate saying, Talking Dog for Sale. It sounded absurd, but he had some time to kill, so he called in. Where's this talking dog then? He asked sarcastically. It's the old blue healer in the doghouse at the back, replied the farmer. The businessman walked up to the dog and said, I hear you're quite a conversationalist. Why don't you tell me your story? And to his utter amazement, the dog actually replied. In a strange, gruff voice, the dog said, Boof, the name's Blue Dog, and it's a pleasure to meet you. I listened to people talking for a couple of years, and then one day I just thought, Why not give it a go? I found that if I could hold my tongue in a certain way, I could actually talk. Since then, I've travelled the world and I've learnt 14 different languages. And Jesus, it's been a good life. The city bloke was absolutely flabbergasted, but he was still able to start to tell me more. Well, first I decided to help me country. So I joined the Secret Service. I worked on some of the worst trouble spots around the world 
and I was able to uncover so many state secrets. You wouldn't believe what people talk about when there's just a dog in the room. Boof! It was pretty hairy at times though. In each country, I, I just got moved on just before my cover was blown. Jeez, there were some close shaves. I could tell you stuff about Iran and Cuba and North Korea that would curl your hair. Boof! Anyway, the stress got to me in the end and they sent me home. Then I decided to join the drug squad. Boof! And I was responsible for some of the biggest drug busters in Australian history. All good things come to an end and after two years I was shot by a bloody ice addict and that put a stop to that. Boof! When I finally recovered, I worked with a private investigator and I worked on some of the most famous divorce cases this country's ever seen. Oh, my goodness, I could tell you some stories about what the other half get up to. Boof! Finally, I settled down here on the farm and now... I'm the proud father of 72 sons and 64 daughters. Boof! Now the farmer figures I'm past me best, so he's put me up for sale. He doesn't even enjoy me songs anymore. My goodness, you can actually sing as well, blurted the businessman. Blue Dog nodded. I've even mastered falsetto. And then he offered his version of a famous... Australian classic. Wolfstein Matilda. Wolfstein Matilda. He'll come a Wolfstein Matilda with me. Buff. At this point, the entrepreneur thought, well, geez, I think I could fart a better version of that song, but who's going to be fussy? A dog that can sing, my God. It's got to be worth tens of millions on YouTube alone. If I can get him for under two million, it's going to be an absolute steal. So then... Shaking with excitement, he tried to assume a poker face and he turned back to the farmer, who was watching and listening from a few metres away. Well, how much do you want for this dog then? He shrugged. The farmer looked frustrated and he snapped. I reckon I'll sell you the bugger for five bucks. What? said the entrepreneur, immediately losing his poker face. Why on earth would you sell him so cheap? Well, said the farmer, i got no time for dirty little fibbers. That dog's a lying bastard. He never done any of them things. Okay, so we'll begin this segment by talking about what not to add to your compost. And the first thing to keep in mind is do not ever add arsenic-treated wood. So we're talking about sawdust or shavings from timber treated with copper chromium arsenate and that's not a good additive for compost. The arsenic is a serious human health contaminant. Some of our large hardware stores are still actually suggesting that there's no problem with the use of treated pine sleepers in the construction of your raised vegetable beds, and that, my friends, is complete and total nonsense. For God's sake, why do you think we tore down hundreds of CCA-treated play areas across the country? It was because they were found to contain really high levels of arsenic in the pine-framed sand pits beneath those structures. There's currently serious concern with arsenic contamination of wines in the Marlborough region of New Zealand, and that's due to the leaching of this toxin from the posts supporting the vines. I mean, I've got personal experience of arsenic poisoning through eating vegetables grown in treated pine raised beds, 
So please heed this warning. Now, the second thing that we avoid putting into our compost is meat, bones and fatty food. Never put them into the compost, certainly in the early stages, because they're going to stink and they're going to attract rats and dogs and other things. It's a different story later in the compost cycle, depending on whatever composting method you're using. But in the later stage, things like roadkill can be added if you want to add a rich load of minerals and the protein that they can provide. Now, Malcolm Beck, who is the kind of guru relative to static pile composting and the author of The Secret Life of Compost, he tells a story about a farmer who lived next to one of his composting sites. Now, the farmer was complaining about the cost of hiring an excavator to bury an old horse that had died that morning. So Malcolm suggested they drag the horse with a tractor to his site and deposit the horse within a fully active compost pile. Five days later, when they reopened the compost to check the progress, they found to their amazement that nothing remained except the horseshoes. Now, I guess that's something probably you don't want to share with the mafia, but it does show the activity, particularly of these well-formed static piles. Weeds and disease plants should always be avoided. I mean, theoretically, the heat can kill the seeds and perhaps kill the disease spores, but if you don't have even heat distribution throughout the compost, well, it's not going to happen and you're simply, it's not worth taking the risk that you might spread both the weeds and the disease. Cooch and nut grasses, similar to these plants with bulbs or rhizomes, can quite often survive the heating phase of compost and again, you risk spreading them throughout the farm. Pine needles in large quantities can be too acidic to add to compost and pet litter can commonly harbour pathogens, so avoid those things. Now what we're going to do next is compare six different composting methods. We'll look at their benefits, we'll look at their limitations and let's hope that some of these, or at least one of these, might appeal to you. We'll begin by talking about static pile composting. Now, I mentioned that this technique was popularised by the US compost expert Malcolm Beck, who wrote the book The Secret Life of Compost. Now, it takes twice the time to produce compost with this strategy compared to windrowing, but there are several pronounced benefits. Here, the all-important aeration comes from air spaces in the mixture determined by particle size. So this technique's not going to be an option for you if you've only got access to something like cow manure as a standalone input because there'll be no air spaces and undesirable anaerobic conditions will probably prevail. However, if you've got access to orchard prunings or maybe council green waste, you might have the perfect material to layer them with the manure to produce a well-functioning static pile. So these are large, usually three metre high piles that are only disturbed three or four times during the six-month composting process. And this non-disruptive approach or less disruptive approach has several distinct advantages. There's much less energy required with machinery and fuel costs involved and there's also less labour required. Sometimes I wonder whether the more actively managed piles actually result in a net carbon gain when so much energy is involved and their production. I'm not sure anyone's ever done any work on this. Static pile composting can produce really good compost with more humus than the more actively managed piles, with more nutritional value, and very importantly, with higher counts of beneficial fungi. 
This quality improvement is related to reduced fungal disruption that I mentioned and a lower loss of CO2 from turning. And there's also less leaching of minerals due to a lower water requirement. So it produces a pretty good product. Now there's also another less disruptive method called aerated static pile. And that involves no turning at all. And it really is one of my favourites. It can also produce an end product in about half the time of the standard static model. So this might be an option for you if you've only got a mountain of cow manure and no material to create the needed air spaces, but you can do it for anything. Static piles can be aerated by either blowing or sucking air through the stack, and it's been found that alternating air movement can promote a similar temperature and moisture throughout the pile, so it's a good strategy. A caged blower fan is quite inexpensive, and that's what's used to push air through a perforated four-inch plastic drain pipe or a network of those pipes under the compost. Obviously, you've got to have a power source for the fans, but they're really cheap to run. So you lay out these aerated pipes attached to the fan before the compost is added. The compost ingredients should be blended beforehand because you can't turn them once you put them on the pile. You can't get in there and be active there with the pipes underneath. But the benefits are very similar to a standard static pile in terms of less inputs and better fungal numbers, but the process, as I said, takes half the time. Pile height, again, should be less than three metres to give or maintain uniform aeration. And when it's time to harvest your aerated static pile, you collect the top layers of the compost with a loader or whatever, and when you get close to the pipework, you pull up the pipes, you scrape up the completed compost, and then you relay the pipes ready for your next batch. Now, we'll just talk for a moment for the home gardener. We'll talk about small-scale static piles for the home gardener. The compost experts often sell the concept that there's no likelihood of producing a good compost unless some level of active management involves. So there's no place for a lazy gardener, but that's not true. Non-energetic home gardeners can pile up their lawn clippings and their fallen leaves and they can recycle those organics without the effort of regular turning. The key here, you don't put much of a nitrogen-based accelerant, so not a lot of lawn clippings or manure should go into that compost. The materials can then sit undisturbed and they can decompose and it might take as much as two years, but it will result in a really good compost. Sometimes you might want to cover them with sacking or an old carpet to stop them getting too drenched in rainfall. And alternatively, in dry conditions, they might need to be watered to prevent them from drying out. So that's a lazy gardener's static pile. The most popular commercial composting is what we're going to talk about now, and that's a much more actively managed compost called windrow composting. So this technique involves more commitment and considerable energy to achieve a good quality compost. For example, the pile might require turning every day for the first 10 to 14 days and quite a few times thereafter. The pre-sourced green and brown materials are usually pre-shredded and added in layers to form long, narrow windrows, usually one and a half metres high and about two and a half metres wide and as long as you like, depending on the space you've got. Large compost turning machines are typically used in windrow composting. CO2 is the gas that's released as the microbes breathe, so it's seen as a good strategy to monitor that gas with a metre as an indication of microbial activity because too much or, or too little CO2 is simply addressed by turning the compost. These windrow composts are usually bacterial dominated because the fungi are repeatedly sliced and diced during the turning process. Moisture needs to be closely monitored 
along with temperature. So you need meters for both. And there's much more applied water involved due to the reduced insulation in those smaller piles. The compost, you produce it in 10 to 12 weeks, and that's the attraction. And so it's become the favoured approach amongst commercial compost producers looking for that rapid turnaround. The next compost we're going to talk about is vermicomposting, where literally the worms do the work. So just one thing to make clear, the worms involved in vermicomposting are not the same earthworms that are found in the soil on your farm, assuming you've got any of them. They're actually a special purpose-bred composting worm. So here the worms do the turning and the aerating, and the worm's poo is loaded with minerals, and also it's loaded with a unique blend of microorganisms that are incubated in the gut of the earthworm, and together this makes a truly champagne compost. There's always a downside, however, and here we're talking about a kind of a lack of the heating stage during composting. So things like weed seeds and even things perhaps like E. coli from manure and stable pathogenic spores can become an issue here depending upon the feedstock that's utilised. So what commercial vermicompost guys are now doing is often pre-composting just for two or three weeks to generate that heat and then you feed that pre-composted food source to your composting worms. The worm juice, which is the residual liquid from watering your piles, can be collected and it's become a really potent and popular bioinoculum and liquid fertiliser. Vermicompost is probably, well certainly it's one of the most effective of all composts. It can be highly productive at just as little as two tonnes per hectare. In fact, comparative research at the now defunct Gatton Field Days, it was really good up at the Gatton University every couple of years, they used to have these practical field days with demonstrations in the paddocks and so forth. But at one point the Queensland DPI did trials on what they called organic ameliorance, which of course is just a fancy name for compost, and they looked at a variety of composts, six or seven different composts, and vermicompost was one of them. And it was found that vermicompost was 20 times more potent than the second best of the compost, which was composted cow manure. So we're talking one tonne per acre, being equivalent to 20 tonnes per acre of cow manure or 2.5 tonnes per hectare versus 50 tonnes per hectare if we're going to talk metrics. So part of that enhanced performance is the inoculum effect from those unique organisms that are incubated in the earthworm's gut or in the composting worm's gut. And we're going to talk about the Johnson-Sue bioreactor shortly and it's a unique system that combines vermicomposting with quite unique static pile strategies. There are actually several different vermicomposting strategies and I've seen some large-scale producers who use kind of an aerated static pile concept to generate the heat first, that's called the thermophilic stage, that heating stage, and that kills the weed seeds and disease and then they introduce the worms into these large piles. And this is really large-scale stuff of hundreds of thousands of tonnes in Auckland in this instance. On my farms, I use modified 1,000-litre shuttles or what the Americans call totes, as my worm bins. And I'll quickly try to explain how to set these up, but it might prove a little difficult without photos or diagrams. But basically what I'm seeking here is the worm juice, although there is some harvesting of vermicompost for extracts, teas, or perhaps for addition to some of my potting mixes for my greenhouse. But basically you use a grinder to cut off the top layer of the metal frame of the tote 
and the top 30 centimetres of the plastic in a bin that the top section of the frame kind of encloses. So now you've got the 30 centimetre plastic section with a lid on the top and that's placed on the ground with the lid facing upwards. And then you drill 1.5 millimetre holes across the top with a cordless drill. The spacing between these many holes should be no more than say 25 mils, 20 mils perhaps. And then you take the sieve that you've effectively created and you position that into the bottom of the bin with the lid facing upwards. So you've created a little reservoir basically in the bottom of the bin that houses about 120 litres of liquid and that's where you're going to capture the worm juice as it's formed. And of course it corresponds perfectly with the tap at the bottom of that tote. So the next step involves screwing a 2x2 pine frame onto the top of the remaining metal framework and then you screw together a second identical pine frame and that's hinged at the back of the bin to that first pine frame. So you've created a sort of support for what will eventually be a lid. So now you screw a sheet of roofing iron onto the top hinged frame and that becomes your lid once you've also attached a handle to the top. Next, you've got to paint the bin a dark colour because you've got to remove light. Worms hate sunlight. And make sure you select a paint that will stick to the plastic, which was one of my mistakes with the early bins. Now, your worm bin's complete and you should always position on a few concrete blocks to allow access with a 20 litre bucket to the conveniently placed tap at the bottom of the bin. Now, it usually takes about one kilogram of composting worms to get this system started and then they're best housed in some moist cocoa peat. You can buy compressed bales, put them in a wheelbarrow, fill the wheelbarrow, it becomes a nice barrow full of moist peat, and that begins the starting point for your one kilogram of worms. As time progresses and you water the bins to keep them moist, some of that water will end up in the 120-litre reservoir that you've created at the bottom, and that allows you to harvest the worm juice with that tap whenever you need it. The worms will tend to multiply and they'll double up every six weeks if food and conditions are right. And unlike humans, they make the call when they feel they've maxed out their living space and then they just simply stop reproducing. So for that reason, it's a really good plan to harvest worms regularly and perhaps expand your bins or, or you can sell the worms for somewhere around $100 per kilogram. So the harvesting in this system, if you want to harvest some vermicompost, Basically, here's the trick I use. You sprinkle some highly paramagnetic crusher dust on one half of the vermicompost inside the bin and the worms, it's quite amazing to watch, they come in to burrow amidst one of their favourite stimulants and they conveniently vacate the other half, which you're then able to harvest. Now, I've seen systems in South Africa featuring several or many 200-metre rows, which are about 30 centimetres high and about 1.2 metres wide, and they're covered in a breathable fabric to protect the worms from birds and sunlight. The worm food is pre-composted, as I mentioned, for a week or two before it's added to the rows with a bobcat, and basically you start at one end with the food, and the worms follow the food, and you just move it down the row, and you try and get the timing right, figuring out how long it takes them to eat a couple of bins of food. And they follow that food to the end of that row. And at that point, they've left behind them a 200-metre row of vermicast and that can be harvested with a bobcat or whatever. And when the worms have completed each row, they're then scooped up and added to the next row. And the rows need to be watered in the heat and you try and maintain a moisture level of about 60%. So in that example, the composters had started their project 
with an investment of about $10,000 worth of composting worms. Two years later, their principal asset had grown to over a million dollars worth of these worms, which are very saleable, but of course they didn't want to sell them because the vermicompost and the worm juice were selling so well. And that massive increase was despite the loss of 20% of their livestock to some very, very fat ibises who had discovered how to drive their hungry beaks through the geofabric and they were eating worms as fast as they could eat them and they were so fat they could barely fly. But that was a 20% loss and they could stand that because they really couldn't control the ibises. That certainly beats the 2% bank interest for sure and it might even outperform the current cryptomania that the world's going crazy over. Now we're going to talk about something that is certainly one of my favourite and we're going to talk about anaerobic composting. Now this might seem counterintuitive if you've always thought of compost making as an aerated system but as I said I'm a huge fan of this method and I want to tell you about it. It ticks all the boxes because it's created in a much shorter time with much less effort and much less disruption and it actually produces much more high quality compost. I'm going to describe something called BAM composting, but I'll also discuss several similar anaerobic systems and how they can be produced. But they're actually all wonderful, but I'm obviously a little biased about my particular BAM version. So here's how it works. Professor Tarua Higa was one of the first scientists to recognise the profound importance of the anaerobic side of soil life. The obvious unanswered question was why are lactobacillus found everywhere? There are no accidents in the perfect blueprint called nature. Lactobacillus are in the gut of all living creatures. They're on our skin, they're on every soil, they're on every leaf surface. And Tarua decided to research their roles, along with a few other anaerobes, and he found that basically they perform similar functions to the aerobic beneficials. They fix nitrogen, they solubilise phosphorus, they deliver minerals, they create humus, they stimulate plant growth, and the list goes on. And so he developed a product called EM, which stands for Effective Microbes, and that's transformed much of Asian agriculture. There are many localised spin-offs across the region, usually based on more simplistic do-it-yourself lactobacillus blends, but EM is a really, really good product. So my BAM product, which stands for Beneficial Anaerobic Microbes, is also a complex multi-species blend. It contains over 80 different microbe varieties, including lactobacillus, uh, purple non-sulfur bacteria, often called PNSB, fermenting fungi, yeast, and actinomycetes. Now, I've already described previously how simply you can multiply BAM on the farm, but I've not really discussed BAM composting and it really is something special. So basically, conventional aerobic composting can typically achieves a yield of about 670 kilos of end product from the investment of one tonne of raw material. Now, BAM composting can yield 910 kilograms per tonne, and this rich black compost is ripe for harvest within just eight weeks instead of 24 weeks for other static pile techniques. You can even speed up that short time frame. If you open the covered pile at two weeks and turn it, then cover it again, and then a week later you turn it again, and that can produce a usable compost within just five weeks. So here's how you make BAM compost. You can make it in a pile or a windrow, depending on your space and the size of your covers, and the pile can be 2.5 metres to 3 metres high, and the windrows 
about 1.5 metres high and as long as you like, basically depending on your space. I usually use something like chicken manure with municipal council mulch and I favour a large pile because I've got some large silage covers that are suitable for that. So this is how you do it and it's really how you do an aerobic compost to start with as well as you make a layer cake. So the first layer of this layer cake usually involves a 30 centimetre layer of double ground council mulch. So that's the carbon layer. So we always alternate carbon and nitrogen when you're making compost. So that's the carbon layer. And then we typically will sprinkle some soft rock phosphate. I mentioned why you might do that. We'll sprinkle some zeolite, some basalt crusher dust, and perhaps some trace minerals that might be required on the farm in that first layer. Then we apply the diluted BAM inoculum at the rate of at least one litre per 10 cubic metres of compost. And then we thoroughly water that into that first layer. Now, this thorough hydration is absolutely essential because you're not going to be touching that pile again, so we've got to do it right the first time. We're aiming for about 60% moisture, and this ample water also helps carry the BAM spores throughout each layer. When the first layer is complete, we add a 30 centimetre layer of chicken manure, that's the nitrogen layer, and that receives the same addition of soft right zeal like crusher dust, humates and relevant minerals before we repeat the inoculum and the soaking of that layer. So the layer cake process then continues until you get to maybe eight or ten layers high. At that point, we mix together everything with a backhoe and sort of recreate our pile, and then we cover it completely with a tarp that's held in place with logs or tyres. And eight weeks later, we can harvest a beautiful compost. Now, this compost has been shown to help detox soils, to create disease-resistant soils, to improve germination, and of course, it gives a great plant growth response, one of the best that I've seen, to be honest. Now, there's a local compost hero in Australia, a wonderful man called Jerry Gillespie, and he's championed a similar anaerobic approach that he calls spice compost. Now, you can Google his name to learn more about that, but just like BAM composting, this method involves an 80% saving in labour and water use. Water's lost during respiration and aerobic compost, but that moisture is trapped under the covers in the anaerobic model and it's recycled during that anaerobic fermentation period. Jerry suggests a good strategy where you create an indentation along the top of the windrow piles to kind of capture and distribute the moisture that traps under the cover. So after the initial heating phase with Jerry's compost, the temperature drops back to 55 degrees C and the pH drops as low as 3.5 due to the lactic acid formation of the lactobacillus. That spice compost of Jerry's can be ready to use within six weeks, but he suggests that you know if you want to, you can leave it a few more weeks of curing where you might get a bit more biodiversity. Now, if you didn't want to use a commercial inoculum like VAM or like EM, then I'm going to give you a recipe to create 200 litres of do-it-yourself lactobacillus inoculum, which could produce as much as 2,000 cubic metres of anaerobic compost at an absurdly cheap price. So here's how you do it. You add two kilograms of rice to 10 litres of water in a 10 litre bucket or even in a 20 litre bucket. Stir the bucket for 10 minutes and then strain out the rice. Maybe you feed it to the chooks or perhaps your family if they're up for a big rice feed. Now leave the bucket of rice washings or rice water sitting for a week, loosely covered. You might have the lid just sitting loosely on it, not clamped close. And it will form kind of a curd-like material on the top. Then you strain off the curd 
and you add this 10 litres of fermented liquid to 20 litres of milk in a 200 litre drum of water, well, I guess it's going to be 180 litres or 170 litres drum of water with the addition of those 30 litres of extra. You can use four kilograms of milk powder as a nice cheap way to do it instead, and that costs about $22. It's about $5.50 a kilogram for milk powder. Now you leave the mixture of rice water and milk and water for a further week and then you've created your lactobacillus inoculum. You might leave it longer if you choose, it's a week minimum. Now you add 10 litres of molasses to that mix and you've created a stable inoculum that will effectively create 2,000 cubic metres of compost at a cost of less than 5 cents per cubic metre. That's for the inoculum component, that's insane. And it'll stay stable for a couple of years. That's what many people in Asia do, make these very, very inexpensive lactobacillus inoculums, and they've got multiple benefits. Finally, I'm going to talk about something I'm feeling a bit excited about. It's called the Johnson Sioux Bioreactor. So Dr. David Johnson and his wife, Hui Shan Sioux, have developed a remarkable strategy to create an amazingly diverse strongly fungal-dominated compost that's perfectly positioned to help us reclaim the lack of fungi and fungal diversity that I think is impacting most commercial farming enterprises. So compost is commonly thought of as an organic source of nutrition and often applied at very high rates to compensate for the low levels of minerals it contains, but David's kind of redefined compost as a microbial inoculum. And growers are achieving really good results with as little as two kilograms of this compost as an extract or a slurry, two kilograms per hectare we're talking. I've witnessed impressive turnarounds in productivity personally and improvements in crop quality associated with improving the fungi to bacteria ratio. The vast majority of soils, when you check them, are sadly missing the fungal component and these organisms basically seem more fragile than bacteria in terms of the negative impact of contaminants and environmental conditions. Obviously, they hate fungicides and they also are seriously impacted by nematocytes, but they are particularly susceptible to herbicides. And then you've got things like tillage and chemical fallow that have also smashed our fungal populations. I'm actually, as I've mentioned before, I'm a huge fan of an inexpensive little field tool called the microbiometer because in addition to providing a guideline of total microbial biomass, anytime you want to check, it also measures the all-important fungi to bacteria ratio. So what do fungi do that's so important? Well, they create the largest soil aggregates that govern gas exchange. And gas exchange, of course, is the movement of oxygen into soils and the diffusion of CO2 out of those soils. So this crumb structure also sponsors much better infiltration. That's a very important word in the brave new world of climate change farming. David cites research where a compacted soil that took 10 minutes for one inch of rain to be absorbed could now absorb that same water within 10 seconds after the addition of his compost. He's seen the doubling of productivity using exactly the same amount of water due to the fungal-driven improvement in water utilisation. Now, I've long recognised the relationship between boosting fungi and improving nitrogen fixation, but part of the story relates perhaps to increased oxygen in a friable soil for these highly aerobic free-living nitrogen fixes, but the relationship is much more complex than that. 
David discusses studies where applications of 250 kilograms of N per hectare were reduced to just 40 kilograms for no yield sacrifice where his compost had been applied at just the two kilograms per hectare. So it's long been recognised that pastures and field crops are bacteria-dominated while orchard crops should be fungal-dominated. But that understanding can be and is very often misleading because it's simply misunderstood. Bacterial domination doesn't mean 80% bacteria and 20% fungi. It means just a little more bacteria than fungi. And what David is finding is that the ratio should probably be one-to-one fungi to bacteria ratio for all crops. And I've got to say that I couldn't agree more strongly. Now, in my last large-scale course prior to COVID, which was held in New Zealand, I partnered with the Coal Masters for five days in Christchurch, and we had daily testimonials from regenerative farmers from across the globe, and each of them reported the same thing. As soon as they improved their fungi to bacteria ratio, profitability and productivity turned round. It's a hugely important part of the equation and David may have well developed an exciting tool to fast-track this process. Well, fast-tracked is probably not the best word to use. You see, I've been aware of this technology for, for quite some time, but I was a little reticent because of the time involved. It takes a full 12 months to produce this compost and basically I'm an impatient bastard. I figured... I was producing an amazing BAM compost in two months, so what what could possibly justify a wait of 10 more months? Well, after reviewing some of the research for this podcast, I'm now intent on setting up several of these reactors on each of my farms, and why the change of heart? I hear you thinking, well, David's conducted some pretty good genome research to demonstrate that the end result is well worth the wait. He's shown that the amazing biodiversity develops mostly over the last six months as compost contains 2,500 species of bacteria, and wait for it, over 4,000 species of fungi. This is a biodiversity we've all been looking to reclaim, just like wine improves with age and a 24-hour sourdough is better than a 12-hour sourdough. I'm now beginning to understand why patience is a virtue when it comes to compost. From a planet-saving perspective, the compost is generating really impressive increases in organic matter, but the big proviso here is that to keep building humus, you need to try and retain up to 60% of the organic matter from each crop cycle. Of course, the fungi need crop carbon to work with and digest. It can't come from nowhere. So that might be difficult in some cropping scenarios. It's also always been contended that the plant pumped about 30% of its glucose carbon created from photosynthesis back into the soil to satisfy the energy requirements of the microbial biomass surrounding its roots. David has found that in sandy soils, and my apple farm is very sandy, as much as 97% of this carbon was pumped into soils with only 3% actually retained for the plant. He's found that the US average is just 11% plant retention of carbon from photosynthesis. So that's very different from the figures we've always been taught. In his research, he found that in a fungal-dominated soil fed with cover crops over six seasons, 55% of that carbon was now retained by the plant. That's a 500% increase over the 11% US average. And fascinatingly, that particular field had a 500% increase in yield. That's that's exciting stuff. So how do you build a Johnson Sioux bioreactor? Once again, it'll be difficult to describe without photos and diagrams. And you can Google it in five seconds and watch some YouTube demonstrations, but I'll have a go. Essentially, 
It involves a four-foot diameter circular cylinder that you create by wiring together 10 mil steel concrete reinforcing mesh with six-inch squares and you just wire them together with wire to create that cylinder. Now the inside of that four-foot high steel wire cage is lined with landscaping fabric, so you just wire it on there, just or tie it onto the inside of the front, so that's weed matting, and that lined cage will eventually be placed on a pallet. Now, you use six six-foot-long slotted hard poly drainage pipes that are to be positioned within the cylinder, and they must never be more than one foot or 30 centimetres apart from each other. So these pipes form the channel spacings that are required to ensure even oxygen distribution throughout the composting process. So six pipes, so you need to cut with a hole saw. Six circular holes must be cut on the pallet at 30 centimetre spacings and the poly pipes will be anchored in those holes. Once the holes have been cut, the cage can be attached to the pallet and the six-foot pipes can be fitted into the prepared holes. Sometimes you need a wire jig to hold the six pipes in position from the top while the frame's filled with the 1.7 cubic metres of organic matter that you're going to use for composting or alternatively a helper can hold them in place as the filling progresses. Now once the cylinder is completely filled, it's left for one day, just one day, before you pull out those slotted pipes and amazingly the six four-inch wide passageways that have been created by fungi and actinomycetes sort of sealing around the, around the pipes, those holes stay in place for the life of the compost and that's how the compost is aerated. Now there are a handful of important considerations with what David calls beam compost. Number one, this is hugely important, the moisture in this compost must never drop below 70%. Now that's different than any other compost. It's higher than any other composting strategy. The raw materials are actually soaked in a barrow before they're forked into the reactor to ensure that moisture level is achieved right from the start. And a simple irrigation system is fixed to the top of that frame and attached to a timer to deliver one minute of water every day. And that's apparently sufficient to maintain that all-important 70% moisture throughout that 12 months. Now, after the short initial heating phase, the temperature drops, and when it's reached, so you need a thermometer to test this, you can just put a thermometer on a broomstick and push it in there if you want, you know, a $10 thermometer from the hardware store. But once you've got down to 26 degrees centigrade, which is about 80 degrees Fahrenheit, then you can add in a few handfuls of red composting worms into the compost. And in that matter, it sort of becomes basically a fungal-dominated vermicompost over the 12-month period. Now, when the compost is complete, it should have a, a kind of clay-like texture where it can be squeezed into a ball in your hand and it should look a bit like a rich, moist chocolate cake. Sounds pretty yummy to me. In the latter stages many of the fungi tend to sporulate and create really huge numbers of spores to become new inductees for your inoculum. It's also a good idea to minimise the end sources so you don't put a whole heap of manure, for example, as the raw material because if you can minimise the end sources, that seems to increase the likelihood of developing really large numbers of nitrogen fixes during the composting time. Okay, so... I'm excited about this now and I'm definitely going to be exploring it further. And that completes the evaluation of different composts. In the next and final segment, I'll share some other general composting tips. 
Okay, in this final segment, I'm going to share the top 10 tips for managing your compost more successfully. So number one, the correction of the carbon to nitrogen ratio. So an important consideration in the composting process is to try to achieve the ideal balance between carbon and nitrogen within your pile. So if that balance is not addressed, decomposition can be compromised because the organisms involved need a certain amount, a minimum amount of nitrogen to enable the breakdown of carbon. So what's the ideal? Well, the ideal carbon to nitrogen ratio is 30 to 1. And often you might need to add some more nitrogen to achieve this goal. So a very simple starting point is to try to achieve two parts brown, which of course is the carbon component, to one part green, which is nitrogen. Just understand that chlorophyll, the green colour, is magnesium with four nitrogen molecules tagged to it. So it's nitrogen intensive. So when it's green, we talk nitrogen and the nitrogen's gone. It becomes brown, nitrogen's off, gas to the atmosphere. So the carbon component is the brown component. So more ingredients that you can source will determine your need for extra nitrogen. For example, sawdust has a C to N ratio of 500 to 1. So you're going to need a bit of nitrogen in that instance if you want to compost that material. So you can download really easy to use free carbon to nitrogen calculators on the web to simplify your decision making. But just a bit of a guideline, grass clippings and animal manure have got a similar C to N ratio of about 20 to 1. So they'll help in the decomposition of inputs higher in carbon. Number two in our list of 10 is understanding the two heat stages of compost and getting them right. So the first stage of composting, and that lasts for one, two weeks, is called the thermophilic stage. And this is where high temperatures are reached and organic matter is broken down by heat-loving organisms, producing gums and waxes and lignans and sugars and amino acids and so forth. And ideally, temperatures should be monitored during the stage to ensure the best results. So here's the key point. The temperature should always exceed 57 degrees centigrade for at least three days if you want to kill seeds and pathogens. But don't go too hot because the temperature should never rise beyond 65 degrees centigrade because then the carbon can get ashed and you start knocking around some of the beneficial microorganisms. So 57 degrees for at least three days, but don't go over 65 degrees. Now, the second phase of the latter stage, or really after two or three weeks, the second phase is called the mesophilic stage. And here we see the temperatures beginning to reduce and we see oxygen levels increase and new groups of microorganisms now move in and colonise the compost and bind the lignans and sugars and aminos into stable humic substances. Remember, humic and fulvic acid are natural components produced during composting. The third thing we're going to talk about is microbial enrichment. This can be quite a valuable strategy. It's a good idea to build in some of your previous compost as an inoculum with every new pile. So I mentioned controlled microbial composting, CMC composting, for example. That involves the addition of 10% of the previous compost to fast track the next pile. So anywhere between 5 to 10% if you want to do that is fine. If you're specifically trying to develop a more disease-suppressive compost, here are a couple of pretty good hints. There are some pest-managing microbes that can actually survive the heating stage, not many, but a couple, and it's a good strategy to build them into your compost as an inoculum. Now, the most important of these is one of my favourites. It's called Bacillus subtilis. Now, it looks like it's spelt subtilis, but it's pronounced 
Satellist, Bacillus Satellist. Now, this is a really useful creature that can control and well-researched to control mildew diseases, things like powdery and downy mildews, but it also produces three biochemicals that boost plant immunity. Now, remember, I've said it before, anything that is recognized as an immunolicitor will also boost your yields. So it's a win-win when we play around with immunolicitation. In that context, if you can source something like crab shell or prawn shell to add into the compost, you know, in the later stages, then you'll have some chitinase in the end product. And that's a really well-researched and quite remarkable immunolicitor. So that's a great inclusion. The other addition for a disease-suppressive compost is one of my wonderful, most favorite creatures, Trichoderma. Now, this predatory fungi can control over 30 disease organisms with a combination of consumption of competitors aligned with stimulation of immunity. Trichoderma can't handle the heat like Bacillus subtilis, so it's best to add them in the latter stages. They're also really good cellulose digesters, so they're really, really good in a more carbon-dense compost. Number four, what are you looking for? Bacterial or fungal dominance in your compost. So some crops are fungal-dominated and they prefer a fungal-dense compost. Orchards, vines, timber plantations are examples of these fungi-loving crops. And even berries, strawberries, were originally a forest plant, so they fall into this category. And a simple recipe for fungal compost is 5% manure, so much less of the nitrogen component, 5% manure, 50% green, and 45% brown in your composition of the compost. Pastures, vegetables, and most field crops prefer bacterial domination, and this involves 25% manure, so five times more manure, 50% green, same amount of green, and less of the carbon component, so 25% brown versus 45% brown. If you compare these recipes, you'll notice bacteria love nitrogen. This is because they've got the lowest C to N ratio of any creature on the planet. Bacteria have got a carbon to nitrogen ratio of just five to one. That means their tiny bodies comprise 17% roughly of nitrogen. And fungi, by comparison, have got a 20 to 1 ratio, so hence the difference in composition of the compost. Listen, you can use, I mentioned my, one of my favourite tools, the microbiometer, you can use that to determine which compost is best suited for your soils, regardless of the crop. You can check the fungi to bacteria ratio with that little tool. And you can also check commercial compost to choose the one with the greatest fungal density, assuming that's what you need, and very often it is. As I mentioned most commercially farmed soils we look at need more fungi, and I really think perhaps we should be looking at that one-to-one, -one, as I previously mentioned. Number five on our list is moisture content. Absolutely critical for microbial action. Moisture can be added when the pile or windrow has been built and or during turning. It's essential to monitor moisture levels. Ensure that handfuls are taken from around and within the pile to identify and avoid wet or dry spots, a lack of consistent moisture throughout the heap can often be related to how water was applied and how well the compost was mixed. I've already suggested the benefits of thoroughly pre-wetting the compost components during construction of the heap. We just, if it's a smaller pile, a specialist compost or whatever, we'll actually fork it all into a barrow, drench it, and then fork it with a huge hay fork, close tines, and then fork that into our smaller bins if we're doing a specialist compost really important we mentioned that's the technique 
with the Johnson Sioux bioreactor. The end goal is to achieve, or during the composting, you're trying to achieve a mix that when squeezed will only drip a couple of drops, sort of like a rung sponge. This represents slightly less than 60% moisture and it's a good strategy to test the moisture content of any product before you buy it because, you know, it's been sitting out in the rain and it's sucked up a bunch of moisture. You're carting water, basically. So you can just do that little test, put your hand in there, give it a squeeze, just a couple of drops is all you want to see. Now, number six, potassium-enriched compost. Potassium, of course, a critically important mineral, and it's also very, very leachable. So it's a good strategy to build some of your potassium requirements into your compost to reduce this leaching potential. Now, the other really good strategy relative to potassium is to never, ever waste your wood ash. Now, you've all seen the dead patch that only grows weeds after you've burned off a pile of wood in the paddock. That's an overdose of potassium as it's the most dominant mineral found in the wood ash. Potassium-loving weeds are all that arise for quite some time on that spot in the paddock. The green flush after burning crop residue that people think is such a cool thing is just a flash in the pan from the potassium and the ash. Wood ash should always be collected, so you burn off a pile, you put it in one-ton bags, whatever, and then add it to your compost whenever that's possible. And remember, there's quite a spectrum of other nutrients in the ash. In fact, basically, that's where the minerals that grew the crop are found and you shouldn't waste that. Number seven, boosting nitrogen fixes in your compost. I've already discussed when we talked about David Thompson's bioreactor about the development of a wealth of free-living nitrogen fixes in his long-term compost, and that was all about not adding too many nitrogen-rich inputs in the start, and that ensures you've got more development of nitrogen-fixing organisms in that compost at the end. So there is also a strategy to boost numbers without that long wait. So it's a productive idea to add nitrogen fixes in the latter half of the composting process. You could use something like my BioN product, but it's a great strategy to also add a tiny bit of sodium molybdate as they're much better equipped to fix nitrogen effectively in the presence of this trace mineral. Remember, 80% of the soils that we test in 57 countries are lacking sufficient molybdenum. So molybdenum is required for the nitrogenase enzyme that converts atmospheric nitrogen into ammonium nitrogen in the soil and on the leaf surface. Only tiny amounts are required. I'd look at a maximum of 10 grams of sodium molybdate per cubic metre. You can even brew up our bioN product prior to adding it to your end-fixing compost and then introduce it to the compost with a little bit of molasses so it really hits the ground running. I'd look at a maximum of one litre of brewed bioN per cubic metre of compost along with 200 mils of molasses per cubic metre. That'll cost you about $50 per 100 cubic metres of compost, 50 cents a cubic metre, so pretty worthwhile consideration. Number eight is assessing your compost quality and knowing when it's ready. So your nose and your eyes are very handy tools when deciding if a pile's fully mature. What we see, and I see it really, really commonly, is that financial considerations can sometimes drive commercial producers to market compost that's simply not completed. If you're producing your own compost, there are no hard, fast rules for maturation time. The length of composting can vary based on a bunch of things like water, microbes, oxygen, temperature, composition, and so forth. 
But here's a few ideas to help you decide if your compost is ready. Take a sample from deep within the pile with one hand only. The material should be dark brown in colour rather than black. A black colour can suggest that perhaps the compost was overcooked. If the compost stinks, it's not ready and may require turning or you might need to modify your recipe for improved aeration. A slight ammonia smell might still be evident in finished compost, but that might also indicate the need for more browns, for more carbon. It's always a good idea to check the temperature as a final guide if there's still a question mark about completion. So the compost is ready when temperatures inside the pile are steadily dropping and they must be less than 40 degrees centigrade. Now you've seen those smoking piles that arrive on a truck when you buy compost and often they're above 40 degrees centigrade simply because the compost has not been completed. At that stage, at less than 40 degrees, the plant matter is mostly humified and kind of amorphous and, and the compost should exude this actually quite delicious, strong, earthy forest floor smell. Now, I'll just touch upon a concept of making your own trichoderma inoculum as number nine. So just to sort of conclude this list of hints and strategies, I'll, I'll share a method to make your own trichoderma inoculum. There are not many people who would share this knowledge, particularly when they sell trichoderma, but I am one of those people because I'm trying my hardest to make farming more fun and more profitable while trying to heal our damaged soils, of course. So how do you make your own trichoderma? It's actually a recommendation from the Filipino Ag Department as a best practices, and they like to see that included with fertilisers because there's considerable research that trichoderma not only increases disease resistance and kills particularly those early diseases uh, like pythium and so forth that affect seedlings, but it also magnifies fertiliser response and you know, it does a whole range of things we won't go into. So how do you make it yourself? Well, simple. You take a pallet, you put a star picket, we call steel post star pickets over here. You put a star picket on each corner of that pallet, just a standard pallet, and you put some chicken wire around the star pickets. So you've created a little wire cage. You leave an opening so you can open it up. You've got a front to that cage you've created. You take a mixture of straw and cow manure and ideally organic cow manure because we find some of the cow manures because of the materials to control parasites actually kill the trichoderma but it's a 50-50 mixture of cow manure and straw which you pre-mix and then you get to a trichoderma inoculum you might put it in a wheelbarrow with some water and dilute it and it's not much involved a couple of hundred grams for the entire pile and you're going to pre-soak that same concept of pre-soaking so you've got a big fork you fork it into the big barrow or whatever you've got you know, it might be bigger than a barrow and then you fork it into your cage with the trichoderma inoculum on it. So 50-50 cow manure straw, soak it in the inoculum, dump it into the bin and fill the bin. You know, that might take you an hour perhaps of good work out in the sun. And when you fill the bin, you've got a cubic metre basically of this mix and it really starts cooking quickly. You'll see the greenish white fungi moving through it very rapidly and it takes just a month and you just made a thousand, well, well, a thousand litres anyway, as a cubic metre of trichoderma inoculum, which usually sells for $50 per kilo. So it's kind of like forty or $50,000 worth you made in a month, and that's pretty valuable. So I hope you can get some benefit from that. Finally, number 10, how much is enough? So we mentioned 
with the wonderful Johnson Sioux concept that it's two kilograms, you know, making a slurry with two kilograms treading seed and so forth, or even liquid injecting small amounts can be effective. But two kilograms to two tonnes of compost is where we're seeing it more as an inoculum. But you can also use it as an inoculum and fertiliser and apply it at, say, 30 tonnes if you're looking for sort of nutrient replacement and fertilising, 30 tonnes per hectare. You can oversupply compost, and I've seen soils that have been really thrown out of balance when people have been adding, because they could get compost cheap in places like Holland, they've been adding like 100 tonnes per hectare on a regular basis, and that is too much. So basically, if possible, the compost should be banded to maximise response in the root zone and, of course, to improve cost-effectiveness. And, of course, there's compost tea. Compost tea is one way to get maximum bang for your buck because... But, but remember, you're only brewing up the microbes rather than stable nutrients in humus. So compost tea or compost extracts, which will give you more of the biodiversity, but will cost a bit more, of course, than compost tea. So that brings us to the end. In conclusion, composting and the associated building of humus is arguably the most important thing that any of us can do to help reverse climate change. Storing carbon in the soil is simply the most effective way to keep CO2 out of the atmosphere. Building humus levels with compost is also the single most effective way to build fertility and profitability. And you might even get paid for this service by carbon credits at some point soon. This really is kind of an ultimate win-win scenario. And I'm feeling that we might be at the dawn of a golden era of agriculture as all of these changes, this regenerative movement takes hold. So it's been really good to spend some more time with you as usual. If you enjoyed the podcast, please feel free to share it with friends and colleagues. Remember that there's also an opportunity for personal Zoom consults if you contact my PA, Camila. So that's Camila, C-A-M-I-L-A, at Nutritech, N-U-T-R-I hyphen T-E-C-H dot com dot A-U. These consults, relatively new, have proven incredibly popular. I just wish there was more time in the day, but I've really been enjoying the opportunity to develop a personal relationship with farmers and consultants and and to offer some guidance. So remember, you can also sign up for my blog. I've just reinstigated that. I'm trying to put something out every week. And you can get a free coffee of my book when you sign up to the Nutrition Matters blog. And my book, of course, first book is called Nutrition Rules. So visit www.nutritech.com.au. So until next month, my friends, stay happy, stay healthy. See ya.